welcome to the first official episode of Making It to the Mic, a podcast about how different voice actors got their start and the steps they took to create the careers they have now. I'm your host, Stephanie Pam Roberts, and I'm so excited to kick things off with my very first guest, Maria Pendolino. Maria and I have known each other for almost 11 years and actually started our voiceover journeys right around the same time. She is truly one of the greats in this business and is a force both in front of the mic as a voice actor and behind the mic as a negotiation queen, which you'll hear more about in a few. So let's jump in. Here's my conversation with Maria Pendolino. Hello, Maria, and welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for being here. So tell us about your journey. How did you make it to the mic and what did you do before voiceover? Sure. So um, I have always been an actor. I was the very annoying child um, who would kind of march into the living room and announce that I was going to perform for you. Um, I believed that I recreated Phantom of the Opera in my basement as a um, ice skating in my socks spectacular, um, fully believing that I was hitting all of Christine's high notes. Um, I did community theater, um, auditioned for several productions of The Sound of Music between ages 11 to 16, um, and did theater in high school and college. And then I went into banking because that was a very normal thing to do. But um, I just wanted to move to New York City. And I took a job that allowed me to move to New York City and gave me a salary that allowed me to, you know, pay first months and last rent in New York. So my plan was I was going to work for the bank for a year. I was going to uh, take some classes at Broadway Dance Center, and then I was going to quit and be on Broadway. That was my 22-year-old career life plan. Um, That didn't happen. I ended up working in banking for just about 10 years. And uh, my career ended kind of when the recession of 2008 to 2010 happened. I was hoping to get laid off with a severance package, but I didn't. So I just quit and I decided, you've got one life to live. I want to be an actor. I've always wanted to be an actor. During the time that I was banking, I was dabbling. So I was auditioning for off, 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 off Broadway, cabaret shows, things that rehearsed at nights, weekends, that kind of stuff. But I wasn't really, you know, fully on the circuit and trying to be a full-time actor. So I quit my job registered for every class, every seminar I could, um, you know, wanted to meet agents. I wanted to meet casting directors. I just wanted to get on the fast track to actually working. And I was auditioning from everything from like $150 to do musical theater in a barn over the summer to like law and order, like everything in the spectrum, you know, from one end to the other. And I started to get some traction in film and TV, which was surprising to me because I never was interested in that. I just hadn't grown into my musical theater type yet. You know, I wanted to play the character parts that Mary Testa and Deborah Monk play at age 45 and 50, and I was 28. So they're like, "Uh, actually, we have old people here. So um, or middle, I should say middle. We have middle aged people here. We don't need we don't need you youngins to play these parts with, you know, age lines and baby powder in your hair. So. I uh, I booked some film and TV, and uh, I had, like, time between episodes, and I wanted to see if there was a way that I could make money as an actor in between some of these bookings. You know, I couldn't book another show. I couldn't book, you know, a, a, a theater production or anything. And a friend of mine mentioned, like, hey, commercials tend to move quickly, so you might be able to weasel in, you know, a commercial in between some of these other legit bookings that you have. Um, so I signed up for you know, like a one-night seminar with a voiceover casting director in New York. And, you know, everybody gets to read a piece of copy. She gives you feedback. You make adjustments. And I just loved it. I just loved it. I was like, I'm bringing this Verizon copy to life, and it feels amazing. Um, so I asked her if, you know, if if there were ways that I could accelerate, you know, 
being able to do more voice work. And um, I studied with her privately and took some more classes. Uh, She helped me get my first agent, really acted as a mentor to me in commercial voiceover. And within a couple of months, I'd actually like gotten to the point where I was on hold for like national campaigns and getting really close to booking some big things. So that's what kind of got me in front of the mic um, at the at the very, very beginning. And then I started to get better and better and I started to book more and more. And I really felt like voice acting and voiceover was actually maybe what I was meant to do. <laughs> um, at the same time, I was experiencing some health challenges with psoriatic arthritis and um, I was having some trouble with my knees and New York being the pedestrian wonderland that it is. It, it just became increasingly more difficult to live there. And also I started to realize that maybe with this challenge, I wasn't going to be able to stand on set for, you know, 16, 18 hours. Um, I wasn't going to be able to do eight shows a week on Broadway with the physical challenge that I had. So at the same time that my enjoyment of voiceover and my trajectory was on the way up, I kind of needed it too. It was a way that I was able to transition all of my acting into it. And, you know, I can walk into a studio and say, hey, could I have a stool? And like, nobody, nobody gives you a look sideways. Um, so that's, that's my journey to the mic and how voiceover became my primary acting pursuit. I love that you were able to pivot into voiceover in a way that worked for you. That you were able to say, I really want to do this acting thing, but I also have these limitations of being on set or having health challenges. And and voiceover was something you could look towards. And, and you've really excelled at it. Your career has been incredible. So can you tell us where you started in terms of genres and where you work mostly now? Sure. Um, I started in commercials. Um, so through the representation that I was able to get, um, from that casting director referral, I was auditioning for kind of the top tier commercials that were available, um, to talents in New York City. Um, so every day I was going to different casting directors' offices or studios or advertising agencies that had in-house studios to audition for, you know, Olive Garden TV and, you know, Huggies Radio or whatever. And I just really wanted to do more. And I took it upon myself to kind of investigate, like, other ways that I could do voiceover. And honestly, I had never really thought about it before. Like, I think I knew, okay, there are voices on TV. Like, I get that. There are voices in animation and video games. I get that. But I hadn't thought about the rest of it. So everything that kind of falls under what we would consider the industrial categories. So things like explainer videos and e-learning narration and webinars and corporate narration. And, you know, if a video plays at the beginning, of something or the kiosk at, you know, the Long Island Railroad that talks to you or, um, you know, the the voices on the telephone that say, I'm sorry, I didn't get that. All of our representatives are currently assisting other customers. I never thought that that was a person. I mean, I guess I knew it was a person, but I never thought it was an actor, a voice actor, someone who who did that as their job and got paid for it. So while I was pursuing commercials at kind of the highest echelon, I started to look for opportunities that I could um, book and pursue on my own. So I built a profile on online casting sites, and I started to kind of tinker with my very first home studio setup, Um, you know, took all of my clothes out of my closet. Um, My apartment in Queens had just like a square pre-war closet that I could like physically get into and shut the door. Uh, Would not consider it a walk-in closet by any means, but I could physically get into it. 
I bought four egg crate mattress pads at Bed Bath & Beyond and, like, stapled them to the walls. And, um, you know, I had my first little, like, place where I could record auditions and things. Um, And then I started to get some traction. And, I, I, you know, I would book a a voicemail system for, you know, a plumber in Denver or something that was posted on online casting. I booked a radio spot that was for a dentist in Miami. And, like, all of these things that my agents wouldn't have any access or interest in. You know, these are maybe $200 or $300 a pop. Um, And I just kind of moved slowly that way into kind of all of the other categories. And now I consider myself kind of a genre chameleon in that I've been able to um, build up clientele and a portfolio in many different genres. So I would say that today I'm working in commercials, promo, corporate narration, e-learning narration, explainer videos, telephony and IVR, the telephone systems, radio imaging, um, television and in-show narration, um, live announce, voice of God, award shows kinds of things. Um, I recently did a movie trailer demo. I I kind of have opened myself up to all of it. Um, I have done audiobooks in the past, but that's really the only genre that I'm not actively pursuing. Um, And I've been working really hard in the last couple of years coaching in animation and video games, all things things um, character-oriented. So, yeah, I kind of am happy happy to try anything. That's amazing. Do you have a favorite genre out of all of those that you now kind of currently <laughs> go between? <laughs> That's a really good question. Uh, I think it depends on on my my favorite because of what. So mm. um, I think um, animation and video games are always my favorite from a performance standpoint. I, I agree. love creating voices. I love going into the booth to play. Um, I love finding weird quirks in my voice and noises and all sorts of things that I can do that maybe I never even thought of. So from a performance standpoint, I'm always the most excited to jump into the booth to audition or perform for that. Um, I really enjoy doing commercials. Um, I I like the intensity of the live session where you have the you know the full advertising team you've got the production and editing team you've got the account reps and the client i love that feeling of like i am your i am your voice on demand and you can tell me to do it faster slower you can tell me to go up you can tell me to go down you can tell me to shave off 0.5 seconds and i can do it i kind of love that performative aspect of the live session kind of commercial um, big project kind of feeling. But I joke when people ask me, like, how how are you a full-time voice actor? Like, how is that, how is that possible? How do you pay your bills? How, how could that even come to be? And I like to joke that e-learning and corporate narration pays my mortgage. Those are the clients that I have found and cultivated, and those are the types of projects that I feel like I really can rely on because there's so much of that work out there. And then I joke that um, commercials play for my vacations. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah, I think that that kind of work is so, like you were saying, like when you're just starting out in the business, you think of You know, if you asked somebody on the street, what's voiceover? They'd be like, oh, like the movie trailer or like a Pixar film. But there is so much more to it that people just don't realize. And I think now, especially in in COVID times, you know, we're recording this in January of 2021, still very much amidst the pandemic. And 
things are changing by the minute. You know, companies need to update their protocols and their procedures. And I think that that work will continue for sure. And it's something that people just don't don't think about, don't realize or don't even know exists. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's grown exponentially prior to the pandemic. And then the pandemic even opened up those genres even more um, as you know, people were looking for ways to convert things that would have normally been done or facilitated live into some sort of remote capability. Um, right when the pandemic started, I had a client reach out and they basically just sent me like a presenter's PowerPoint deck, uh, you know, a kind of an orientation for new employees that normally probably would have been done in a conference room for, you know, an hour and a half or two hours with, you know, a tray of danishes and everybody <laughs> wearing name tags. And they were just like, is there any way that you could just like record this for us and just like make every slide its own? you know, audio file. Um, it wasn't even it wasn't even ever written or planned to be delivered remotely. Um, but they just needed it because they can't have 15 employees in a conference room, you know. Um, and I think we'll continue to see more of that. And I also think we'll continue to see more things coming out of companies realizing that remote work is a possibility and um, it's actually it's actually a benefit and it's good. Um, you know, I think prior to the pandemic, there were two types of companies. There were companies that tolerated if, you know, employees needed to work remotely. And then there were companies that actively encouraged it and embraced it and built their whole company culture around that flexibility. Mm -hmm. And I think going forward, I think a lot of people who have enjoyed the benefits of working remotely, whether that's reducing your commute or having more flexibility, access to your family, whatever that is, I think a lot of people in the workplace are going to be demanding that as uh, as an employee benefit, as something they want to see from an employer, at least having the ability if they want to take that option. And I think that will continue to drive more you know, pre-recorded or bite-sized, you know, content, webinars, things like that, so that messages can be delivered remotely to people wherever they're at. Yeah. And what do you think about how the pandemic has changed the voiceover industry? Like, I know for me, I've always had a home studio and people were sort of like, oh, you have a home studio? That's cool. Do you work in it? I'm like, yeah, every day. But now it's like, oh, thank God you have a home studio. Oh, my goodness. We needed somebody <laughs> with a home studio. So how do you feel like that's kind of affected or boosted your business? Yeah, I think, you know, prior to the pandemic, when you told someone that, they ha that you had a home studio, like some people thought when you said that you just meant that you had a microphone and like a duvet cover. <laughs> And you were just lying about it. <laughs> um, and then there were people who, like, actually believed you. And they're like, oh, you have, you know, all the connection technology we need. We understand, like, you are set up for this and you're a professional. Um, I think there's a lot of people, whether it was people who only did jobs in studios or engineers that were only accustomed to working with in-studio talent, that, like, truly didn't believe that there were talents that had Source Connect, IPDTL, ISDN, all of those things installed and were ready to go and just didn't believe that people did those top tier kind of national jobs from home. Um, and it was like, nope, I have a booth. I have a studio. I have tens of thousands of dollars of equipment and connection technology. And like, no, it is it is legit. Um, so I think the pandemic, for those of us that were, you know, at the forefront of the home studio revolution, uh, the pandemic offered us legitimacy. 
which uh, I thought was really great. Mm. And I was happy to ride that wave. I love the way you put that. I'm sorry, I just had to interrupt. I love the no. way you said that. It, <laughs> it It's so true. It felt like, yes, I am a studio. <laughs> this is what we trained for, right? Um, and I've loved connecting with engineers on Source Connect or ISDN all over the country, all over the world. And you connect with them and then they're like, they're like hello, hello. And you're like, hi, this is Maria. And they're like, oh, you sound great. Thank God. <laughs> yes, I love that. I, I have had that experience as well. And it is so satisfying especially, you know, coming from, you know, a place where I was going to some studios, but not a ton. And then, you know, now just being at home, you always wonder, like, is it is it as good as I think it is? Like, I think it's really good. Like, I, I've worked really hard on this. And then when somebody from the outside, from, you know, the tech side, from someone who's an expert says, oh, you sound great. This sounds great. Oh, thank goodness. You know, you've made my job easier today. It's, it is such a sense of relief and pride. Yeah, absolutely. I, I feel like prior to the pandemic, I felt like I was sometimes on the defensive that mm. I had to I had to defend my knowledge. I had to defend my equipment and I had to defend my ability to accept the booking. Um, and I don't feel that way anymore. So that that for me is definitely a silver lining that's come out of this. Another silver lining is that some of the geographic restrictions have just lowered. I won't say that they are gone but they are lowered. So uh, obviously for the duration of the pandemic, the casting community in New York uh, was typically a in-person casting community. So you would actually report to a casting director's office or studio or one of the, um, you know, rented community studios to actually do your audition. And they obviously have not been able to do that during the pandemic. So I have been able to um, audition for more people that I would have previously been geographically restricted to. I think there are also, you know, access to opportunities across the country, across the world, where people are more willing and able to accept auditions widely. I think people are happy to hear from talent kind of all over the place. Um, and post-pandemic, I think probably there will be some things where a geographic preference returns, mm -hmm. but whether or not it becomes a full restriction again, I think we, that remains to be seen. Um, I think, you know, some of the animation and video games in Los Angeles, especially things that like to record in studio, they like to record ensemble or you're doing mocap as a group or something. You know, I think things like that will go back to having some geographic in-person requirements. But, you know, they've been able to carry on and we've shown them that we are a very resilient community and have been able to, you know, continue working through all of this. So I'm hopeful for that. But I do feel like the industry moved forward 10 years and 10 days in March. Yeah. And I'm also really encouraged by I've always felt that the voiceover community is extremely welcoming, open, and very supportive of each other. It does not feel like an industry that is cutthroat, even though we are, you know, honestly, truly in competition with each other. And I was very encouraged to see the attitudes of folks, um, you know, on various forums or Facebook groups, like offering advice about how to get in touch with Source Connect support and, you know, what this means and what that means. And, oh, I recommend this, or this is a great mic to try or whatever. Um, you know, the people who had been primarily studio talents who really, you know, if they had to do an audition remotely, they would just do it on their iPhone, but otherwise they were reporting to studios to do things. I was very encouraged by how the community kind of rallied around those talents to help them get up to speed as quickly as possible so that they could, you know, maintain working for the, for a living. Yeah, I, I totally agree. It was it was such a weird moment, you know, when it was like, oh, no, this is really happening. And like now we really need to adapt. And I think I think you're right. I think people really stepped up. Um, so speaking of 
you know, recording on your phone or having like a very basic setup, when did you upgrade, you know, your first kind of home booth, Bed Bath & Beyond setup to like the net? What was the next level and when did you do it? Yeah. So um, I I left New York in 2014 and I moved back to Western New York, Buffalo, where I grew up. And I recreated the same setup that I had in Queens. So I moved into an apartment in Buffalo that was also pre-war construction that also had a small square closet that was not a walk-in closet. And I literally just recreated my Bed Bath & Beyond um, mattress pad creation there. Uh, And I worked in that space for uh, a couple of years. And then in 2016, my now husband and I bought a house. And that is when ultimately I decided to upgrade to a Studio Bricks booth. So um, I guess from 2010 to 2014 was my closet in Queens. Mm -hmm. 2014 to 2016 was my closet in Buffalo. And then 2016 to present is kind of my full uh, Studio Bricks booth experience with all of the bells and whistles that go along with it. And um, what is a Studio Bricks booth for those who may not know? Sure. So Studio Bricks is a modular um, isolation recording booth. Um, It is, uh, there there are two kind of main versions that voice actors look at, the Studio Bricks 1 and the 1 Plus. Um, The 1 kind of looks like a typical uh, phone booth, you know, enough room for you and a a music stand or something to hold your copy, and you can kind of just stand in there and do your work. The OnePlus is a little bit more rectangular, a little bit more um, space to stretch out and maybe have, you know, a small desk and and working space within the booth. Um, And it goes together like giant heavy Legos. (laughs) It's so So, cool to watch. It's 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 very therapeutic in a way. Yeah, they just kind of like click in together and um, it can be assembled and disassembled easily. So it's a great option for people who think that they might be, you know, moving, you know, more frequently than the average bear. Um, you can disassemble and reassemble it uh, really easily. It's a it's a great kind of sturdy option. And um, it's just the perfect size for the type of work I do and for the space that I had in my home. We actually couldn't get a studio bricks in our house because the room that we're using, that I'm using as my booth, has this really bizarre slanted ceiling. So that wasn't an option for us, but we sort of, my husband, um, who is a sound engineer, very lucky, uh, sort of recreated what the studio bricks kind of specs are. But that's that's awesome. I love that there's there's those options for people who, you know, are just starting out and maybe are looking at a studio bricks and thinking, oh, I don't know if I'm ready to make that investment. I think it's so great to hear that you worked for a very, very long time in a closet. Yeah. And I, I kind of knew when I was ready, you know, um, in in the closet, you know, from 2010 to 2014, most of the jobs I did were things um, that I recorded on my own. So if I was booked on a major commercial, I was going to a studio in New York City to do that work. But if I booked something on online casting like a phone system or an explainer video, those were the types of things that I was recording on my own time, you know, recording my takes, editing them, whatever, and sending it to the client. I didn't have anyone kind of listening in or directing me. As I started to acquire more clients and higher echelon clients who want to be a part of the record process with you, that's when I started to feel like I was outgrowing the closet Mm -hmm. because... I didn't want to sit in my closet for the duration of a two-hour directed session with, you know, multiple people on the line giving lots of feedback. And, you know, um, if I had connected to someone on Source Connect editing, you know, they're doing edits on the fly, so I kind of have to sit there and be on standby. You know, 
I started to realize that I had outgrown that space. And from an ergonomic perspective, right. I wanted something that was more comfortable to sit in, had a higher ceiling. I could put more light into um, all of those things. So for me, it was a very kind of natural progression. And I kind of realized when I was ready to make the upgrade. And my business supported the investment at that point, too. Right. Did you upgrade your mic at any point in there? I did. Yeah. So um, in the closet from 2010 to 2016, I was using an Audio-Technica AT2020 mic. It was the first mic I purchased. It was just the one that someone recommended to me uh, when I was ready to buy my first microphone to start auditioning from home. And I used that. I used my starter mic for the first six years of my career. And then um, when I upgraded to the Studio Bricks, that's when I upgraded my mic kit. And now my daily driver is a Neumann TLM 103. And then I also have a Sennheiser 416 shotgun mic uh, available if somebody wants that for a specific type of read. Uh, Things like promo specifically, a lot of times that is a requested mic. So I have that kind of ready to go. The better the mic, the more discerning the mic is about your space. Mm-hmm. So I had actually bought the Neumann in 2014, and I set it up in my relocated closet in Buffalo, and it sounded like straight garbage. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I don't think that this space is what the Neumann wants. And I put it back in its beautiful little mahogany box from Germany, and I put it on the shelf, and I was like, when I'm ready for you, I will come back for you. And uh, I kept it in its box from you know, for two years uh, until I got my studio bricks. And then I popped Neumann into the studio bricks. And it was like, you can almost see the mic, like, stretching its arms, like, okay, I'm ready now. <laughs> was it like, um, oh, like, yeah, little, exactly. like, twinkly lights around it? <laughs> you just see, like, the little halo. And it's like, I'm I'm ready. <laughs> yes, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. Um, so, yeah, I've been, I've been using that mic since I got my studio bricks booth. I think that's such a, an amazing, valid point that, like, you could spend – a lot of money on a mic that Sennheiser mic is well over a thousand dollars, right? Uh, the the four sixteen you can get between like eight ninety nine and nine ninety nine, and the Neumann uh, TLM one hundred three I think is nine ninety nine. They're they're thousand dollar mics, yeah. But the your your point is is well taken. Um, the Audio Technica mic is one hundred and twenty nine dollars, and I got mine used on eBay. I think I paid eighty seven dollars for it. <laughs> so an eighty seven dollar mic works in a so-so space. A $1,000 mic sounds like garbage in a so-so space. Um, So, you know, an expensive microphone is not necessarily the best or right first or even second, third, or fourth investment. Um, the The space is much, much more important. Thanks for helping me make that really valuable point. I think people get so, you know, because the mic is the is the sexy part of it. You know, what kind of mic do you have? Nobody wants to know what kind of like foam you have on your booth walls. Everyone wants to know like, what's your mic? What's your mic? But you're right. If if somebody doesn't have the space for it, but has a, you know, a great option for their space, they might sound fantastic. And, and you know, buying the thousand dollar mic may not be you know, the right choice at the right time. When we lived in Astoria, I also had a closet booth and we experimented with several different mics. I was like, I'm getting my Neumann U87, just like the studios have. And then I plugged it in. I was like, I can hear the dog downstairs and the street noise and the hum of my refrigerator. And so, you know, for me, that also wasn't the right choice until, you know, we moved here and and had the right space, the right sound treatment um, for the, the investment. 
Yeah, the Neumann hears everything. It yes. hears it can I, I swear to God, it could hear like if my across the street neighbor like shut a door, the Neumann can hear it. <laughs> if you don't have it in a good treated isolation space. But like once I'm in the booth and I shut the door, you know, it's just it's just me. It's just me and Mike here and we're just having a great time. So when did you become a full time voice actor? Uh, I became a full time voice actor. That's a really good question because I kind of I kind of looked at myself as doing a full being a full time voice actor as of 2014. But I was basically working two full time jobs Mm. because I was actually making more money as a voice actor than I was at my day job. But I kept my day job for benefits and stability at that point. And the types of projects that I was getting at that time were still able to be scheduled kind of in and around everything. So, you know, from nine to five, I was working for a nonprofit organization remotely. And then I would kind of roll over to my other computer. And then (laughs) from like six to midnight, I was working on all of my voiceover work. So I felt like I was working two full-time jobs at the same time. I made the decision to leave the nonprofit at the end of 2018 because I had grown my career to a point where I needed all of my daytime hours available for voiceover sessions. And that came as a result of, you know, increasing my representation and exposure to advertising agencies and clients and the type of voiceover jobs that require the live business hour daytime sessions. And it just, it it got to a breaking point where I realized, like, I'm not going to have enough, you know, vacation days or lunch breaks to make this work anymore. So I just have to jump and go. So um, voiceover was my primary source of income after four years. And then at year eight, it was my only source of income. Hmm. That's amazing. And has your business grown year after year? Yes, exponentially. (laughs) (laughs) And I feel very fortunate to be in that position. Um, But since, you know, since the first voiceover check that I cashed in 2010, um, my business has grown steadily year over year. What was that first voiceover job? Do you remember specifically? Yes. The first voiceover job that I did was a radio spot that aired in Buffalo for a local college here. And it was about signing up for their graduate education program. And it was a 30-second radio spot. And I think I got paid like $250. And I literally thought like the it was it was like the ball dropping on New Year's. (laughs) Like I just I couldn't believe that I, you know, read the spot, you know, six or seven times. I got to hear it with music before I left the studio. And uh, then, like, the first time I heard my voice on the radio, I probably almost hit a telephone pole because I was just, like, squealing. Um, but, yeah, it's it's amazing, like, the trajectory from that to now, you know, being voice of national brands um, on TV and doing all the different types of projects that I do now. Yes, I love that. Was it, like, that moment in That Thing You Do where she's driving? Do you know that movie? Yes, yes, yes. It's it, it, exactly like that. Oh, my gosh. For those who haven't seen it, just watch that scene. It's so cute. Liv Tyler is walking and she's licking a stamp and the stamp is like in her mouth and she's like, oh, my God. Um, but I, I, I like to think that that's what you looked like. Just joyous, just sheer joy hearing it on the radio for the first time. Yeah. And to be honest, like I still do it. Like I'll be listening to Pandora and like my my own ad will interrupt my playlist and I'll be like, it's me. Or like like my husband and I will be watching. Um, I have 
I have commercials running right now for Pillsbury, and it comes up a lot on Food Network, obviously. So we watch a lot of Chopped and Guy's Grocery Games and stuff, and we'll be sitting on the couch watching it, and then, like, I come up and I'm interrupting my show, and I'm, I just, I squeal every time. What is the weirdest or funniest um, incident of, like, hearing your, your voice in the wild? <sighs> Let's see. Oh, oh, I know one. Uh, I was in an Uber in New York and was having just like a very friendly conversation with the Uber driver about what I did for a living. And I had done um, radio commercials for Proactive. And it was kind of that very direct address, like the kind where it's like, you know, use code whatever. And like you say the phone number seven times, that number again is blah, that number again. Don't forget the number again is. And we were literally in the Uber and my commercial came on while I was telling him that I was a voiceover artist. Oh, my gosh. How lucky. You're like, that's it. That's what I do. Turn that's it up. The one. That's the one. That's me. Do you have bad skin? This is me. That's amazing. When I was shopping in um, Bye Bye Baby for a baby shower gift for my best friend, my husband and I like split up through the store to divide and conquer and buy stuff from the registry. And I had done a kiosk video for Skip Hop. And in, I don't know if you've been in a Bye Bye Baby recently, but the Skip Hop wall is like floor to ceiling, like this giant display. And right smack in the middle was the video playing. And both of us were like, hello, Ste- Stephanie, is that you? And we like both turned <laughs> and we're like, oh, my God, I'm in the store. So we we just like had a great laugh over the fact that he thought that I was talking to him, but I wasn't. The video was That's talking. That's amazing. <laughs> That's amazing. So from, you know, from that first commercial and, you know, kind of moving forward, what do you think is is something that you you wish you would have known in those first years or that you that you wish you would have done differently? That's a good question. Um, I wish. I wish I would have known more about, like, how to reach out to clients directly Um at the very kind of beginning of me looking for my own work, I really focused almost exclusively on online casting. And I liked that because I got to meet people the moment they needed a voiceover artist versus when you do direct marketing emails or cold calls or, you know, looking for rosters and things like that. You may not be the person that they need that day, that week, that month. You you never know. Um, But I wish I had done a little bit of it then because I feel like I would have planted some seeds that, you know, I could be, you know, taking advantage of now. Um, Also, it it takes a while to get up to speed on the lingo, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, especially when you're booking your own jobs. And I've obviously been a very outspoken advocate in the community for negotiation and protecting your voice and protecting your rights and making sure that you're not signing away everything and selling the farm, you know, for $300 or whatever. Um, you know, I'm sure I made some mistakes. I'm sure I did things that I should have been compensated, you know, much, much more for what I did or how I performed. So, you know, I, I wish I wouldn't have made some of those mistakes. But I think those are kind of all of the growing pains that come to, you know, doing something new. Um, I do think it's important to, like, understand the product you're selling. Like, you know, when when you are putting yourself up, you're hanging up your shingle, you're opening up your website, you're putting yourself out there. It's important to understand the industry that you have entered and, you know, what you're trying to market yourself for and be able to to speak the language of the people in that industry. 
So I'm sure I'm sure I made some mistakes along the way there. Um, but my career has grown very organically. And I think a lot of times people who are newer to it, you know, they they look at the the landscape and say, I want to do everything. I want to do commercials. I want to do narration. I want to do animation. I want to do all of it. And that's great. And you should want to do all of those things. But you can't wake up and do all of those things on the first day. You will not have 10 perfectly crafted demos on your website the first day you start doing voiceover, the first year you start doing voiceover. So I think there can be maybe just a little bit of analysis paralysis when when people are getting started and trying to figure out exactly, you know, who, what, when, where, and why, how to do all of it. And for me, my career has grown very, very organically. You know, I started in one genre and I really kind of became a master at that genre. And then I added genres over time and I, you know, I researched them. I looked at who was working in those genres. I listened to demos in those genres. I consumed the media in those genres. Mm. You know, if you want to work in radio imaging, you should listen to the radio. Right. <laughs> and you should listen to imaging on all the different stations across the country. You want to work in commercials? You should watch commercials. If you don't have a TV, go find commercials. I think all of that for me happened very organically. So I would just... I would recommend that people remember that Rome is not built in a day as they are trying to grow their career. And you are the negotiation master queen maven. You have, I think, single sort of single handedly changed how a lot of voice actors think about usage and negotiating their fair rates. So how does that feel to be kind of like on the forefront of of that movement? It's kind of crazy because it just it just happened. You know, I didn't I didn't proclaim myself, you know, queen of negotiation. Um, others have kind of bestowed <laughs> bestowed that title upon me. But um, I think it feels it feels great to know that people are getting paid fairly for their work and are protecting their rights and interests and not creating conflicts for themselves. And I know there are a lot of people who are, you know, creative. Creative is the right brain, right? It's either right brain or left brain. So they have the creative brain and they are less comfortable with kind of the numbers or the business brain or the, you know, things that are are technicalities and language and stuff like that. So, you know, if I can do things to help break that down for people who are less comfortable with that and get them comfortable with that, I'm happy to do it. Um, I'm always really, really happy to have the feedback when I've presented my negotiation class either live at a conference in pre-COVID times or as a webinar. I always get such lovely feedback from everyone saying that they learned a lot. And people have sent me messages, you know, a couple weeks after taking the class saying that they quoted higher than they ever thought they could. And the client was like, great, can't wait to move forward. And they end up making $800 more than they were expecting to make because they were underquoting or undervaluing their services previously. And that feels great because it's good for all of us. If we're all if we're all out there in the community quoting fair industry standard rates, it lifts the bar for all of us. So if I can put information out there that helps people do that, it it helps the entire community. And I'm really happy to do that. I personally have benefited from these webinars and, <laughs> and seminars and negotiation tactics. And, you know, it, I have notebooks full of notes from from these different seminars that I reference often. And and I think it's true. You know, you always say a rising tide lifts all boats. And it's it's so true. It's like when everybody's kind of living on that same level, it feels good. But it is scary when you're just starting out, because especially if this is a new career path or, you know, something that you're not used to, it's like kind of feels strange to ask for that. I think it feels strange to say no. 
or to say like, mm, can we renegotiate? Can we talk about it further? And and I think, you know, it's when when people get comfortable with it, it's it's good. It's good for everybody. Yeah, absolutely. I think learning that you have the individual agency to say no to a job is really powerful and it's not something that comes by default as an actor. In the acting profession, we're so conditioned that, you know, every job leads to the next job. If you work with this director, they're going to love you and they're going to call you in next time. And you just we're just conditioned. We're conditioned to just say yes. And and even if we even if we don't get paid or even if we just get a copy and a credit and even if you just get lunch and your name on IMDb, that's enough because it's going to lead to the next thing and it's going to feed the next thing. Voiceover is different. Our voices are being used in commerce. People are immediately deriving income from the use of our voice in whatever it is, whether it's a piece of advertising or a webinar that helps employees do their jobs better so they can make more revenue for their company, whatever it is. It's just different. And I think knowing that and knowing that you have the power to stand up for your value and knowing that you have the power to walk away. And um, if you're looking to this career to be part of your livelihood, you know, you see an offer come in to do a job for $200, $300, you know, to especially now in the pandemic with a lot of people out of work, $200 to $300 is the difference between groceries, the difference between your car payment, the difference between paying your rent or your mortgage. It's a lot of money. And um, the power to step away from that and say, actually, you know, this job should pay $1,500. So I'm not willing to do it for $200 or $300. It takes practice and it takes conditioning to be able to have that strength and that wherewithal. But ultimately, I do believe it pays off in the end. And also, it's wildly satisfying to, you know, have somebody approach you with an opportunity that they've wildly under budgeted for and not from a not from a place of evil um, or malfeasance, just literally because they didn't know. They just assumed like, oh, this seems like enough for the time that we think it's going to take. But then you explain, you know, specifically in advertising, like, oh, you're you're going to be using my voice. It means I might not be able to do things for your competitor while it's running. All of this stuff goes into how I've calculated my rate. And it's just so wildly satisfying to have someone understand where you're coming from and say, yeah, we can work with that. That makes sense. Thank you for explaining that to me. And now I'm cashing a $1,500 check instead of a $200 check. But it it's hard. It's hard to open up that conversation. It's hard to approach it. It's hard to it's hard to stand your ground. Um, but it's uh, it's something that is really, really important. And if I have helped people do that better or do it more comfortably or use language that is um, easy and accessible and, you know, non-combative to the clients, I'm I'm always happy to share that information. It's a great webinar. If you have the chance to take it, I highly recommend. So I think we're, we'll wrap up with my last question, which is what is your favorite piece of advice to give to people just starting out? My favorite piece of advice, my goodness, so many. Um, I, think, I think I will lean on this. Uh, voice acting is acting. And if you are interested in this profession and you do not come from an acting background, whether that is acting on stage and actually haven't taken acting classes or things like improv comedy, stand-up comedy, where you're crafting and storytelling, or even, you know, long-form storytelling, things like they do at The Moth or um, things like that, you will need some acting training. It is not simply sitting in front of a microphone and reading a piece of paper. Because if you do not have that acting background to fall back on, you will sound like you are sitting in front of a microphone reading from a piece of paper and the words will not come to life and people won't 
believe you or want to hire you for that job. So if you are listening and you do not have that actor kit and toolbox from your previous work or previous lives, I would say your number one job before you buy tons of microphones and technology and sign up for every class under the sun and sign up for online casting memberships, your first money investing in your voiceover career is best spent on some acting training. I love that. That is a great, great piece of advice. So thank you, Maria. It has been a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And um, I will link in the show notes uh, where people can get in touch with you and learn more about your work and social media. Sounds great. All right. Thanks, Maria. Thank you. Maria is so generous with her knowledge of this business and is such an incredible resource. I love what she said about her career growing organically, from the progression of her home studio and equipment, to going from part-time to full-time, to entering new genres. It's a great reminder that this business can take time. And energy. Maria is one of the hardest working people I know, and it's paid off for her immensely. If you'd like to learn more about Maria, I'm linking her website and socials in the show notes, which you can find at my website, www.stephaniepamroberts.com podcast. And to stay updated about future episodes, please follow me on Instagram at stephaniepamrobertsvo. As I grow this podcast, it would be amazing if you would take a moment to subscribe, leave a review, and or tell a friend who might also be on their voiceover journey. Thank you so much for joining, and here's a little teaser of next week's episode with my guest, Jamie Muffet. People get obsessed with noise reduction and compression and EQ and things like that, and I equate that to a butcher pre-seasoning all of their meat before they give it to you. (laughs) That's next time on Making It to the Mic.